Welcome back to The Jewish Story, a Jewish history podcast for the 21st century. In this show, we'll take a look back at the history of the Jewish people, relying on historical documents, archaeologic artifacts, and linguistic data to paint a picture of the past. Last episode, we explored Jewish life in the Muslim Empire at the turn of the first millennium. We met Jewish traders, brokers, and clothing manufacturers, learned of the Jewish exilarchs and their sometimes rocky relationships with the Geonim, and saw Judaism develop several new traditions of Torah reading and prayer. With the Muslim Renaissance, we saw more secular branches of Judaism emerge, challenging standard rabbinic wisdom, and we learned of the rich traditions of literacy and academia in Judaism as well, spearheaded by the yeshivot and supplemented by influential Jewish writers like Saadia ben Yosef. This week, we will turn our attention north to Eastern Europe and the Balkans and meet two new emerging groups of Jews, one which would quickly fall to ruin and one which would flourish and continue on into our modern world. And we will dive deeper into the Jewish literary traditions of Spain and the Western Muslim Empire. Before we begin, I'd love to hear what you thought of last episode. Let me know by emailing the show at jewishstorypod at gmail.com. That's jewishstorypod at gmail.com. Earlier in the podcast, we had discussed Jewish life in Persia, Africa, Arabia, and the Iberian Peninsula. But Jews in the early centuries of the first millennium had also traveled north, settling in the Balkans, the Caucasus, and along the northern shore of the Black Sea. As early as the first century CE, a wave of Jewish migration occurred from the Middle East into the Crimean and Taman peninsulas, which at the time were ruled by a Greek client state of the Roman Empire. Archaeologists have found the remains of ancient synagogues in these territories, as well as columns and pillars with Greek inscriptions of classical Hebrew names. The Jewish presence here and in neighboring lands, such as modern-day Hungary, the southern bank of the Danube River in modern-day Bulgaria, Greece, and northern Turkey, continued steadily until at least the 6th century CE. In the early 7th century, the Sassanids still ruled over Iran and Afghanistan, and the Byzantine Empire held control of southern Europe, including the southern bank of the Black Sea, much of the Middle East, and down into Egypt and the north coast of Africa. But encroaching on the Byzantines from all sides were a number of semi-nomadic tribes, such as the Avars, Khazars, Kangars, Visigoths, among others. Further north, the Saxons, Angles, and Frisians were battling for control of northern Europe. After an initial peace between the Byzantines and Sassanids, a Byzantine civil war proved a perfect opportunity for the Sassanids to attempt to steal some of their territory, an act that sparked a 25-year-long war between the two empires. This war left the Byzantines vulnerable to the surrounding tribes, who took due advantage and began to further encroach on Byzantine territory, particularly the Avars and Slavs. The Byzantines ultimately won the war with the Sassanids, leaving Emperor Heraclius in charge, the same Heraclius that introduced anti-Jewish laws and sparked the Jewish-Persian rebellion we heard about two episodes ago. But by the end of the conflict, the Byzantines had lost much of their grip on Greece, the Balkans, and a strip of land between the Black and Caspian Seas. It was this strip of land that caught the eye of a semi-nomadic Turkic warrior tribe, 
which would go on to play an unusual role in Jewish history. They were called the Khazars. There are several key sources from which the story of the Khazars has been pieced together, some more reliable than others. Multiple converging sources, including Christian, Muslim, and medieval Jewish writings, all make reference to a Turkic tribe which had converted to Judaism, and there are archaeological finds as well which make this a near certainty. In the city of Kiev, a petek, or Jewish certificate, held by a charity collector, has been found with Turkic runes inscribed on it. Coins have also been excavated, which read, Moses is the messenger of God on one side, and Land of the Khazars on the other, dated to 837 CE. There are also Muslim and Jewish writings of the 10th century, which mention Khazars that engaged in Jewish practices. However, the precise means of the Khazari conversion is what remains a mystery. The most detailed accounts we have are from letters written back and forth between a Khazari king and a Jewish scribe who worked under one of the Muslim caliphs. However, some of these letters have been called into question in terms of their authenticity, so the details of this story should be taken with several grains of salt. To start off, let's tackle what we can be pretty sure about. The Khazars initially hailed from the grasslands of Western Asia. They were a pagan people who worshipped the sky god Tungri, traveled often, and lived mostly in yurts that were easily collapsible and mobile. In the late 7th century, in the wake of the Byzantine-Sassanid War, the Khazars made a push south towards the Caucasus Mountains, and by the mid-8th century, their area of territory had expanded greatly, edging up against the Muslim Empire to the south and the Byzantine Empire to the southwest. Over the next century, with their fierce fighting abilities, the Khazars took for their own the entire Crimean Peninsula, including the city of Kiev, much of the Ukraine, and even forged northeast into southern Russia and western Kazakhstan. The Khazars were led by an emperor called a Kagan, who functioned more as a big man than a true emperor. The various high lords of the tribe would ask each successive Kagan how long he intended to rule, and if one attempted to stay on past his proposed term, they would swiftly put an end to him. The Kagan would also sometimes face challenges from his general, called a Bek, who might challenge him for rule of the tribe. Astonishingly, this Turkic tribe would soon convert to Judaism in significant numbers. We cannot be sure exactly how this conversion happened, but in order to understand where at least some of these Khazari Jews came from, we'll have to shift our gaze towards Eastern Europe, where a relatively new community of Jews had just begun to settle. Since we have not talked much about this area of the world so far, let's take a moment for a quick geopolitical update. Northern Europe in the first few centuries of the Common Era was populated by a large number of relatively small tribes of various different ethnicities. The tribes who had settled along the northern Rhine frontier of the Roman Empire were known collectively by the Romans as the Franks. Many of these tribes initially had a working relationship with the Romans, serving in their armies, but over the ensuing centuries, the Franks became increasingly powerful and difficult for the Romans to control. By the early 5th century, one of the Frankish kings openly attacked the Romans and was ultimately successful in conquering some territory. 
The conquests of the Franks against the Romans continued for decades, with successive Frankish kings conquering more and more Roman territory, ultimately creating an independent Frankish kingdom. This kingdom was composed of two primary parts. Austrasia, or the Eastern Lands, was the initial core Frankish territory, while Neustria was the western area in northern Gaul that had previously belonged to the Romans. The Frankish kings continued their conquests, taking territory from the Romans, the Soissons, the Alemanni, the Visigoths, and the Bretons. By the end of the 6th century, the Frankish kingdom encompassed nearly all of Gaul, and by the early 8th century, it had expanded to include much of modern-day France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and western Germany. By this time, the Western Roman Empire had been reduced to a very small area in the Italian peninsula, and the Byzantine Empire continued to hold much of Turkey, Greece, and Sicily, and the surrounding islands. The Khazars now held a sizable area of land north of the Black and Caspian Seas, including most of Ukraine and southern Russia. The Muslim Empire, now ruled by the Umayyad Caliphate, still held the largest land mass by area, including all of northern Africa, the entire Middle East, Iran, and as far east as the Stans, having pushed the Byzantines out of much of northern Europe. During this early 8th century period, the Franks were led by a man named Charles, first of his name, who ultimately won a decisive victory against a large and fierce Muslim force in the Battle of Tours in 732 CE. This victory prompted him to earn the nickname Charles Martel, or Charles the Hammer. Charles was a devout Christian, and aside from his keen military mind, he also supported Christian missionaries, proselytizing across the Frankish kingdom and beyond. King Charles died in 741 CE and left rule of the kingdom to his son, Pippin the Short, who was coronated by Pope Zachary in 751 CE. Just 20 years later, Pippin in turn left rule to his own son, Charlemagne, who would go on to become one of the most powerful men in Europe. During his rule, Charlemagne was able to amass so much territory and power that by the end of the 8th century, the Frankish kingdom was the mightiest power in the West. In 800 CE, he was officially crowned Emperor of Rome by Pope Leo III, who hoped that the establishment of an imperial authority in Western Europe would protect the papacy. And thus began the Carolingian Empire, named for Charles himself. Wait, 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 you might be asking. How is all of this relevant to the Jewish story? Well, as it happens, an influx of Jewish merchants had made their way north from Israel and Babylon up into Carolingian Francia at around this time. These Jews seemed to have a sort of arrangement with the Carolingian kings, who knew the Jews to be experienced merchants and traders from their centuries of experience trading throughout the Middle East under the Muslim Empire, and wished to encourage and control supply of textiles, spices, and other luxury goods desired by the Frankish nobility. These Jewish merchants would move luxury goods and weapons from the Frankish kingdom outward and in somewhat of a starburst pattern, south to the Muslim world and onward down the Silk Road toward India and China, where they would collect spices and perfumes and bring them back up through the land of the Slavs and Khazars back to Europe. The Carolingian Empire fragmented and dissolved by the end of the 9th century, 
and it was around the turn of the 10th century that the people who would go on to be known as the Ashkenazim truly began to arrive. Both historical record and recent DNA evidence paint an interesting picture of the migration of Jews into France and Germany, the region which came to be known as Ashkenaz. The initial migration to Ashkenaz seems to have been from a fairly small group. DNA evidence gathered by Dr. Doron Behar reveals that up to 40% of all Ashkenazi Jews are descended from just four women of Jewish-European origin who lived at the turn of the 10th century. Studies of the Y chromosomes of Levite Jews suggest that Ashkenazi Jews originated from the Middle East, in and around Israel confirming a common lineage between all branches of Judaism. Around the turn of the millennium, a group of Jews subsequently migrated upward through the Italian peninsula and into Germany and France, settling most prominently in the Paris basin and in the regions of Champagne and the Rhine. Over the intervening years, these Ashkenazi Jews multiplied in Europe, eventually bleeding east into Germany. The Ashkenazim were largely traders, like many generations of Jews before them, and for the most part stayed in Ashkenaz, aside from a small group of Levites who made the pilgrimage back west towards the Iberian Peninsula, and one other group who wandered into the territory of the Khazars. Thus, Jewish migration into the Khazari territory was coming from three places, from Ashkenaz to the east, from the Byzantine Empire to the west, and from Mesopotamia to the south. It was in the early 10th century that the Khazari Empire was truly transformed by Judaism, though how it happened is one of the great mysteries in Jewish history. The Khazari king in the early 10th century was named Yosef, or Joseph, and according to a series of letters purportedly written by one of the Khazari kings, he welcomed the Jewish refugees from Ashkenaz, Byzantium, and Mesopotamia with open arms and the Jews spent many generations living amongst and intermarrying with the Khazars. Over time, their Judaism faded, with only circumcision and the keeping of Shabbat remaining as consistent practices. Eventually, one of these integrated Jews rose to become Bek, or general, of the Khazari army, and, after a great victory, he was made king of the Khazars. It is thought that this man was named Bulan, but later took on the name King Sabriel. On becoming king, Sabriel re-embraced his Judaism. He circumcised himself and his noblemen, brought in Jewish sages from Baghdad and Persia to educate the population on Judaism, built synagogues, and kept Jewish fast and feast days, including Hanukkah and Passover. During the course of Sabriel's reign, Jewish conversion spread widely throughout the Khazar population, and the six subsequent kings, all with Jewish names, continued the tradition. However, the Khazar Empire was engaged in constant conflict, mostly with the Kievan Rus armies and occasionally with the Byzantines themselves. Within 100 years of its Jewish conversion, the Khazar kingdom was overrun and sacked by the Rus. Most of the population submitted to their conquerors, converting out of Judaism to Christianity, but some Jewish Khazars kept their faith and wandered the region winding up in various areas of Europe, including Toledo, Spain. Since Muhammad's death, the Muslim empire had been run by successive dynastic families called caliphates, 
meaning successor in Arabic. The first caliphate to take control of the empire was the Rashidun, or rightly guided caliphate. This included Abu Bakr, Muhammad's father-in-law, Umar I, and two other caliphs. As we mentioned in episode 4, under the Rashidun caliphs, the Muslim empire grew extensively, growing six or seven times in size over the course of just 30 years. But under the reign of Caliph Ali, Muhammad's son-in-law, a civil war broke out between himself and the governor of Syria's son, Muawiyah. With the help of the Syrian army, Muawiyah emerged victorious and birthed the Umayyad Caliphate. With the Syrian army at its back, the Umayyad Caliphate continued to conquer and expand the Muslim territory. One significant change implemented by Muawiyah was a new means of determining who the next caliph would be. The traditional method was to have the caliph chosen by a group of peers and guided by a shura, or tribal council. But instead, Muawiyah introduced a hereditary system where the title of caliph would pass from father to son, thus making the Umayyad Caliphate the first dynastic caliphate. As the Muslim empire continued to grow, it became more and more unwieldy to control. Revolts began to erupt in Syria, Iraq, and Iran, while non-Arab Muslims began to align themselves with the Hashemiyah, a dissenting religio-political faction who denied the legitimacy of Umayyad rule. In 749 CE, the Hashemiyah rose up and proclaimed one of their own, Abu al-Abbas al-Safa, as the next caliph. And thus began the third caliphate, the Abbasid dynasty. Upon defeat of the Umayyad Caliph, Marwan II, in 750 CE, the Hashimiyah rounded up the remaining members of the Umayyad Caliphate and killed them, thus eradicating any possible competition for rule. But one survivor, Abd al-Rahman I, escaped and fled to Cordoba, Spain, which was part of a Muslim-controlled area encompassing nearly all of the Iberian Peninsula called Al-Andalus that had been taken from the Visigoths in the Umayyad conquest of Hispania some 40 years prior. Abd al-Rahman had been on the run ever since the Abbasids had risen to power, but over the course of 25 years, he slowly began to regain some power in Al-Andalus, eventually rising to become Emir, a local ruler and military commander. Cordoba at this time was quite wealthy, being rich with resources including corn, olives, grapes, silkworms for producing fine fabrics, and several mines of precious metals. Because of its richness, it was also a hub for traveling merchants, who would bring spices, gems, and other goods through for purchase by Cordoba's elite. By the time his successor, Abd al-Rahman III, came to power in 912 CE, the Umayyad family had firmly re-established control in Al-Andalus, and al-Rahman III proclaimed himself Caliph of Cordoba challenging the reigning Abbasid Caliphate. One of this new caliph's close advisors just happened to be a Jew named Chastai ibn Shaprut. Chastai was born to a traditional Jewish family in 910 CE in Spain. He had a traditional Jewish education, going through Jewish day school and subsequently through yeshiva, and then went on to study Roman and Greek medicine. Because of his early education in Hebrew, Arabic, and Latin, he was able to read from a number of widely sourced medical texts, making him highly knowledgeable. But Chastai really piqued the caliph's attention 
when he brought to Cordoba the recipe for an elusive potion called Theriacum, made of viper flesh, which was said to be an antidote for most poisons, a restorer of fertility, a cure for deafness, a laxative, and a general pick-me-up. Abd al-Rahman III was so impressed with the Jewish doctor that he appointed him customs collector for trade on the Guadalquivir River, a job that ultimately made Chastai quite wealthy and helped him gain a number of important political connections. One of Chastai's jobs as the caliph's right-hand man was to help the caliph negotiate with neighboring Christian kingdoms, since the relationship between Muslims and Christians had grown increasingly tense. Chastai would choose special gifts to send to these kingdoms, and, when gifts were sent in return, the caliph would release a prisoner or agree to a tactical alliance. For example, a clever alliance with the Byzantines against the Abbasid caliph in Baghdad. Outside of his official work duties, though, Chastai also had a keen interest in supporting Jewish communities far and wide. He would often send letters advocating for better treatment of Jews in other areas, or letters of advice to other Jewish communities, many of which are found in the Geniza archive. He also contributed lots of money to the yeshivot in Babylon and supported other Jewish scholars closer to home. One of Chastai's biggest side projects actually had to do with the Khazars, who we heard about earlier. After hearing of the Jewish kingdom from passing travelers, he sent a letter to the Khazari king, Yosef, inquiring about how extensive the kingdom was, how many people lived there, how many cities and towns it had, and how it was governed. He even sent a group of his men off to go find the kingdom, but after six months of travel the trip was abandoned, having been strongly discouraged by the neighboring Byzantine Empire. Now, I said just a moment ago that Chastai wrote a letter to the Khazari king, but that isn't strictly true. Chastai was a busy man, and so he had hired a scribe to write his letters for him. This scribe was named Menachem ibn Saruk, a Jewish boy who had traveled down to Cordoba from a town called Tortosa in the northwest of Spain. Menachem was an extremely gifted writer and poet, and his poetry had impressed Chastai's father, Isaac so much that he had taken him on as a mentee. Menachem became close with the family and would eventually write Isaac's eulogy upon his death and go on to become Chastai's personal scribe. During his time working for Chastai, Menachem continued to write beautiful poems and also developed a fascination with the Hebrew language, which by this time was mostly just a language of scholarship and not widely used. Menachem, by analyzing the text of the Torah and Talmud, developed the first Hebrew dictionary that focused on the three-letter roots of Hebrew words in order to uncover their meaning. This achievement gained Menachem a great deal of attention among the Jews of the Muslim empire. But not long after Menachem sent off Chastai's letter to the Khazari king, a new and younger Hebrew writer named Dunash ben Labrat came to Cordoba from Baghdad, the center of the Muslim world. Dunash was born in Fez, Morocco, but moved to Sura as a young man, where he studied at yeshiva with Sa'ad Yagaon and became a great writer. One of Dunash's great literary innovations was taking classic forms of Arabic poetry, meter and rhyme patterns, and applying them to Hebrew poems. A classic example of one of these patterns can be found in a prayer that Jews still know well today, the Adon Olam. It's characteristic repeating 
short, long, long, long segments, comes from the Arabic hazaj pattern. Dunash's writing was also notable due to the fact that his poetry often included verses written by his wife. Dunash's avant-garde style became hugely popular among Jews in Al-Andalus, with many of his poems being adopted into common usage in prayer. It seems that all of this fame went straight to Dunash's head, as he began to openly ridicule Menachem and his three-letter roots, gloating. This started a fierce feud between the two writers, which quickly grew to envelop much of the Jewish population, and sometimes literally led to riots and fistfights in the street about how Hebrew should be used. Chastai ibn Shaprut, the great doctor and right-hand man to the caliph, took notice of Dunash, and simultaneously began to grow suspicious of Menachem after accusations of him being a secret Karaite were launched. Ultimately, Chastai fired Menachem and adopted Dunash as his new scribe. Menachem, wounded, complained fiercely, lobbying Chastai to get his job back. But believing him to be a secret Karaite and becoming increasingly annoyed at his aggressive badgering, Chastai ended up sending soldiers to assault Menachem at his home on Shabbat, tearing his hair out and then exiling him from Cordoba. The independent caliphate of Cordoba continued as a strong rival political force to the Abbasid Caliphate until the death of Caliph al-Hakam II in 976 CE. At the time of the caliph's death, his son Hisham was still a child, leaving the vizier, or governor of Cordoba, al-Manzor, the opportunity to seize control of the city for himself. He swiftly did so, and, to ensure he retained his power, Al-Manzor gave significant favor to a particular strong military group called the Berbers. The Berbers were a collection of native tribes who had been living all along Central and Northern Africa since 2000 BCE. They had sequentially allied themselves with the Romans and the Carthaginians, and then ultimately conquered by the Vandals, the Byzantines, and the Muslims. The Berbers then allied themselves with the Muslims to aid them in conquering the Iberian Peninsula from the Visigoths, and would continue to periodically join the Muslims in various military campaigns. Anyhow, our greedy vizier, Al-Manzor's son, inherited rule of Cordoba from his father, and when he himself died, his brother, Abd al-Rahman Sanchuelo, rose to power. Now, by this time, Hisham II, the true heir to the caliphate, was all grown up, but Sanchuelo was able to convince him to resign his claim and officially name Sanchuelo as caliph. It was this act of treachery that launched many of the members of the Umayyad into a full-on coup d'etat. In the first decade of the 11th century, Sanchuelo had taken a military force to beat back the Christian kingdom of Leon to the east, leaving Hisham II in charge in his absence. And, while the big dog was away, a mutineer named Muhammad II tossed Hisham II from power, officially starting what became known as the Fitna of Al-Andalus, a massive civil war lasting over a decade. When Sanchuelo returned, the usurper Muhammad II captured him and summarily executed him. This left Muhammad II with a great deal of power, but not everyone was too happy about this new arrangement. In particular, I'm talking about the Berbers, who had had a close allyship with Al-Manzor and Hisham II. 
Between 1010 and 1013 CE, Zawi ibn Ziri, a chief in the Berber Sanhaja tribe living in Al-Andalus, launched a siege of Cordoba. His Berber army sacked the city and raided the countryside, forming a blockade. The siege was quickly successful, and upon their victory, the Berbers installed their own man, Salaiman ibn al-Hakam, a member of a different Umayyad group, as a puppet caliph. As reward for their support, Salaiman granted Zawi ibn Ziri and his faction the Spanish province of Elvira to settle in, and shortly thereafter, Zawi moved their capital to the hilltop city of Granada, officially founding a semi-independent kingdom there. This was just one of many independent territories, called Taifas, which had formed after the fall of the Umayyad Caliphate of Cordova. In the spring of 1013 CE, as Cordoba was being sacked by the Berbers, a young Jewish man named Shmuel ibn Nagrela was fleeing from the chaos. Shmuel had originally been sent to Cordoba by his father, Yehosef, in order to study with the famed Jewish scholar Moshe ben Hanoch, a rabbi who had actually been rescued from kidnapping by pirates by Chastai ibn Shaprut, and now taught up to 700 students. Shmuel was smart, studious, well-mannered, and a beautiful poet. According to a 14th-century Muslim writer, quote, he went deeply into the principles of the Arabic language and was familiar with the subtlest works of the grammarians, and he was excellent in mathematics and astronomy, unquote. Much of his poetry was specifically written to be read out loud, often with musical accompaniment from flutes, a stringed instrument called an oud, and drums. And he certainly didn't shy away from taboo topics in his poetry. Its subjects included all-night drunken parties, eroticism, and even some homosexuality. But upon the sacking of Cordoba, Shmuel fled south to the port city of Malaga, where for a while he set up a spice shop, continuing to write poems on the side. It was there in Malaga, according to some biographies, that he was discovered by servants of the vizier of Granada, who recognized Shmuel's great talent as a writer. The vizier invited the young Jew up to Granada to become his personal secretary, and upon his death in 1038 CE, Shmuel was appointed as the new vizier and high commander of Granada's army. This was the first time a Jew had been commander of an army, possibly since the Bar Kokhba revolt. Under Shmuel, the armies of Granada were enormously successful, winning numerous battles with neighboring taifas. And, based on Shmuel's poetry, much of which was actually written during times of war, it seems that Shmuel was often on the front lines. In his middle age, his poems begin to become a bit more somber, focusing on the inevitability of death in war. We also have some reports Shmuel wrote directly to his son Yehosef, who was born in 1044 CE, insisting he maintain his education. Quote, Even as the grave yawns about me, I can't stop educating you. Mark what I say. The cultured man is like a fruiting tree. Even its leaves will heal the sick, while fools are like forest wood, good only to be consumed by fire. Unquote. Shmuel passed away in the year 1056 CE, and his son Yehosef took over as vizier. Yehosef was not looked on nearly as well as his father. 
Arab accounts describe him as arrogant, overbearing, presumptuous, and corrupt. And as such, old Jewish stereotypes began to bubble up again and spread not just to Yehosef, but to all Jews in Al-Andalus. One of Shmuel's old literary sparring partners, Ibn Hazim, wrote, quote, Jews are prone to lie. Whenever there is difficulty, they want to wriggle out of it. By God, it is the way of the Jews. You will not find among them, with rare exceptions, anyone but a treacherous villain. Let any prince upon whom God has bestowed his bounty get away from this dirty, stinking crew, beset with God's anger and curse, wretchedness and misfortune, filth and dirt, like no other people there has ever been. Let him know that the garments in which God has wrapped him are more contagious than elephantiasis. Unquote. As for another Muslim writer, Ishaq al-Ibiri, quote, The Jews used to wander around in tatters, covered with contempt and humiliation they would rummage among the dung heaps for a bit of filthy rag to serve as a shroud for the burial of their dead. Pious Muslims are in awe of the vile infidel ape who had seized Granada's revenues, dressing in exquisite garments while you are forced to wear the basest clothes. Therefore make haste to kill him, slaughter and sacrifice him, and offer him fat ram that he is." Unquote. And it seems all of this anti-Jewish writing seemed to really rile people up. Not only did the Muslims of Granada begin to dislike Yehosef, but they also feared that the Jews were trying to turn Granada into a Jewish state. This fear stemmed from a project that Yehosef had begun working on, a palace on the ruins of a small fortress on Sabika Hill. All of this malcontent culminated in December of 1066 with the assassination of Yehosef and a brutal mob attack on the Jews of Granada in which many were killed and many more fled. It took 20 years until Jews slowly began to trickle back into Granada and restart their normal lives, albeit a bit more reserved than they had been previously. Along with those who returned, a teenage Jew decided to make the journey from his home in Tudela in the Christian kingdom of Navarre. The boy's name was Yehuda Halavi, and the purpose of his journey was to meet up with an acclaimed Jewish poet. Yehuda was an aspiring poet himself, and had been sending in a great number of poems from his hometown to the accomplished poet Moshe Ibn Ezra in Granada. Ibn Ezra admired the boy's work and invited Yehuda to Granada to meet him. Yehuda arrived in Granada in around 1088 CE and was welcomed in by Ibn Ezra. He even served briefly as Ibn Ezra's secretary. Unfortunately, just around this time, a conquering force was sweeping north through the Iberian Peninsula, up from North Africa. This group was called the Almoravids. They had started out as a confederation of Berber tribes in North Africa, who had been converted to Islam in the 9th century. But by the early 11th century, they had begun to fracture, and much of the land they had taken control of in northwestern Africa had fallen out of their hands. In an effort to reunite the group, a religious Muslim scholar from Morocco was brought in to preach for the group, a man named Abd Allah ibn Yasin. Ibn Yasin had an extremely strict interpretation of the Quran and was quite zealous in his religiosity. He preached that conquest and forced conversion was a necessary part of being a good Muslim. This religious fervor whipped up by Ibn Yasin ultimately worked and got the Berber tribes pretty fired up. And, beginning in 1053 CE, 
the Almoravids began to Islamize, convert, and conquer much of the northern Sahara and up into Morocco, up through the Atlas Mountains and into Spain. By 1070 CE, the Almoravids were in control of all of Muslim Spain, including Granada. They made the capital of their newly expanded empire, the city of Marrakesh. The Almoravids were ascetic and militant, in the style of their initial teacher, Ibn Yasin, and not good for the Jews. As a result, many Jews, fearing for their safety, left Granada, including Ibn Ezra and Yehuda Halavi. Yehuda traveled first to Lucina, a predominantly Jewish Andalusian city where he knew the head of the yeshiva. But after the Almoravids began to force either conversion or absurdly high taxes to the Jews of Lucina, he moved on to Seville, making a living as a poet for hire. Finally, at the turn of the 12th century, he moved to Toledo, situated in the Christian kingdom of Castile. Alfonso VI, the Castilian king, was hospitable to the Jews as they knew the language and culture of the Muslims. Toledo had a thriving Jewish community, and in fact, that's where Moshe ibn Ezra, Yehuda's old mentor, was living. Yehuda trained as a doctor to supplement his income, married, and had three children, staying in Toledo for 20 years. But he was never truly happy there, and had a rough time, with his family becoming embroiled in scandal and two of his three children dying in childhood. Yehuda wound up returning to Cordoba a bitter man. But as Yehuda was building a life in Toledo, major changes were occurring in the Christian world, changes that would ultimately turn the tides of Jewish life. And with that, we will bring season two of The Jewish Story to a close. Thank you all so much for listening. Next season, we will pick up our story right where we left off, with the Christian Reformation and the rising tide of anti-Semitism that would ultimately culminate in the Crusades. That's next season on The Jewish Story.